Wise Women in Waste podcast series with me, Debbie Hitchin, Director of Sustainable Production and Consumption, and Claudia Amos, Technical Director for Circularity, Resource Efficiency at Anthesis. If you've joined us in our previous episodes, you'll know that we're co-hosting a series of short podcasts where we inform conversation and explore trends and opportunities in our sector through the lens of women like us. We're inviting inspirational women in the waste and circularity industry to discuss their passion for the work that they do and provide some industry insights and knowledge along the way. Today, we're really excited to be joined by Anna Brockhouse, who's a consultant at Anthesis, and Alessandra Pastoria, who's a senior program manager at Zero Waste and Circularity at Microsoft. Anna and Alessandra are going to be sharing some insights from a collaborative report that they've been working on to find circular alternatives to stretch wrap plastic that's been used for transportation in the delivery of goods across different supply chains. So welcome to you both. It's great to have you with us. We're super excited to hear more about your project. But before we dive into the project that we've just been talking about, perhaps we could start by asking you to introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners. So Alessandra, first of all to you, could you tell us a little bit about your role and your career journey so far. Yeah, happy to. And thank you so much, Debbie and Claudia, for having me on the podcast. I'm super excited to be here. So I lead Microsoft's global zero waste and circular economy program, setting the company's vision and agenda to be zero waste by 2030 using a circular economy approach. And day to day, that means I collaborate closely with cross-company stakeholders, partners, and organizations to make meaningful progress to accelerate the transition towards a circular economy. I was really interested in environmental challenges most of my life, but I decided to pursue a career in corporate sustainability when I was conducting ecology research in rural Indiana, exploring the impacts of agricultural runoff on streams and rivers. And while I was doing that research, I saw the drastic impact that this one human decision has on the environment and understood that it was representative of just many, many decisions that we were making as a society and how those decisions were part of a bigger economic system. It was really then that I decided to pivot my career from academia to business because I saw business as an effective tool to make quick progress. I worked in the solar industry for a few years, and then I started becoming more and more interested in waste systems and the vision for a circular economy, and have been working in the waste and circularity space for over six years and the broader sustainability space for over a decade. There is so much in that introduction that I want to dive in and unpack. But um, before we do, let me hand over firstly to Anna to introduce herself, and then we'll get into the conversation and find out a little bit more about your backgrounds. Thank you. Thanks, Debbie. And yes, thank you very much, Debbie and Claudia, for inviting me to the podcast. I'm very excited after having listened to quite a few of the episodes to be here myself. So yes, I'm a consultant at Anthesis. I started around two and a half years ago after finishing my university degree in environmental technology and previously in geography. And already, I think probably when I was like early 20s, decided to pivot my job search into waste, which at that point, quite a lot of my friends thought was quite a a weird thing for like a beginning 20 girl to be like, I want to work in waste. But after traveling around the world in different countries, I just saw the amount of waste, which was not handled very well and saw the impact it had on the environment. And I was just like this has to be different and this cannot be the end of how we deal with waste around the world and also within our own countries. 
And yes, so within Anthesis, I work within our sustainable production and consumption team and do a lot on projects around circularity, wastes, alternative materials, packaging. So basically everything that encompasses that. And yes, the project that you had also already mentioned was one of those, but I guess we'll come to that one in a little bit. Thank you. I think it's really inspiring to see actually people, you say girls in their early 20s, and it's inspiring to see people taking this as a career path and proactively doing it. Claudia and I have now met so many different different people through these podcasts and seen so many different career pathways into waste, some intentional, like you've both described, and some sort of accidental and some winding, which, Alessandra, I think some of your experience sort of led you through a pathway to where you are today. And it never ceases to amaze me how different women and different professionals in our sector have actually come to being where they are today. And it's the richness of that experience, I think, that they gain along the way or that richness of that sort of vision that you get from seeing things that you want to change particularly Anna in your case in travels in different countries that I think gives us the incredible vision that we have as a sector and the the ability to really drive change comes from that richness of those different experiences that the professionals that work in it today have had on their career journeys. I think the other thing is also that waste is so visible if waste is badly managed we are really going back to public health issues the original the origin why we started collecting waste in the early hundreds and I think also maybe the opportunity the change we can make and visually change what we don't like and what we really feel cause pollution and environmental harm. That might be the attractiveness of waste to see you can make a difference. But I think maybe we go to the project now, as we have mentioned it in the introductions. Anna, can you tell us a bit more about this uh, Stretch Wrap Alternatives project? How did it come about? Who was involved? And maybe also give us a bit of an overview of the findings and what has come out. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So the project started at the beginning of 2021. So it was quite a long project, especially in the consultancy world. And it was started by Microsoft, who kind of saw the whole B2B and stretch wrap pellets as a bit of an issue, which also not that many companies actually tackle because quite a lot of the focus on packaging at the moment is more the packaging that's actually going to the consumers, but not that many companies are actively trying to also manage the packaging in the background. So the project has kind of been set up through the Ellen MacArthur Foundation Network. So there were 11 companies in total who worked throughout all of 2021 to find some kind of alternative solution to the current stretch wrap situation. And the project kind of split into three main pathways. So we were looking at a reusable alternative, an alternative where we would increase or improve the recycling of the stretch wrap that is used currently, and then also explored how could we use compostable material to wrap our pallets in the future. And we did different trials and pilots, tested out within the companies that were part of the project. And then at the beginning of 2022, so basically between January and March, we pulled all our findings and results of the different pilots and studies into a report together, which was published at the end of March, which is really exciting and really nice to see how the project all came together. And I guess on your point regarding kind of the main findings of the report, it was really interesting to see that there is no one size fits all solution every solution and every company or supply chain will need its individual solution. And you can't just say this is perfect because it might work perfectly for one company, 
but it might not work perfectly in a different company. So it kind of shows the complexity and it also kind of explains why Strattrap is used everywhere because it's so flexible and it can literally be used everywhere. But also the collaboration piece, I think, was impressive. The companies covered the entire supply chain from chemical companies manufacturing companies, logistics, and then also within the FMCG sector. And it just showed how much you can actually achieve and also that you also need the entire supply chain in order to change the system. Not one company can suddenly be like, this is perfect. So yeah, I think they're kind of different lenses of this project, which were just extremely valuable and really, really interesting to also watch how it developed from the first idea to the final report, which is now published. Brilliant. Maybe we can also put it in the link to the podcast to support that. And I really like what I'm hearing because I was at a conference this week where everybody was presenting their technology and the different approaches. They were basically a day on bio-based and biodegradable compostable polymers and then lots of chemical and advanced recycling technologies. And I think that was also the consensus in the room that all of these different options have a place in the different supply chains for the different products, for the different packaging, if it's B2B, if it's straight to consumer. So I think that was really nice to hear that everybody got a place and it's not having one or the other. But I think there was also a feeling that we have so many technologies and concepts now that we actually need to reduce a bit down within those major categories to find a couple of solutions we're actually commercializing to achieve scale. Is that something you looked at as well? Or was that just kind of like, that's where your report finished, Alessandra? We did look at scale as a criteria for the pilots that we were testing, but we didn't Like when I hear you talking about there's a lot of options on the table today and within like a compostable type of packaging or some sort of biopolymer or recyclable packaging, we didn't do a ton of work into looking at the full landscape of what the options were and then narrowing down on what we thought would be the most scalable. So I think that's definitely something like a next step that the industry or organizations can take is looking more broadly at the full menu of options and then doing work to define what type of criteria would be necessary in order to choose the best of each category. I would like to ask you a question, Alessandra. I want to go kind of back up a level because I think during your introduction, lots of our listeners would be thinking, hold on a minute, Microsoft has a circularity team? Well, I didn't know that. I didn't expect that. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, how did that team come about? What's your role in it? And then maybe come back to the report about, you know, what made Microsoft interested in focusing on stretch wrap and why did you get involved in this project and produce this report? Yeah, happy to. So yes, Microsoft does have a circularity team. And the way that our organization is set up is that we have a central sustainability function. So it sits within the corporate function. And then our circularity team spans across multiple business groups. So from operational business groups for our campuses and data centers, as well as product and cloud hardware teams and packaging teams. So it's a big group of people continues to grow as well, which is really exciting for our business. Um, And as I was saying earlier in my introduction, my role in that is to set the vision and agenda for the company. So 
In 2020, we put forward our zero waste by 2030 commitment. And one of those targets within that that broad commitment is to eliminate single-use plastics in our packaging by 2025 for our Microsoft product packaging, as well as our IT asset packaging within data centers. So as we're going down the path of making progress towards this commitment, one of the trickier materials for us is stretch wrap plastic that is used to transport IT assets within our data centers. And once we had identified that problem, we began to look for solutions out in the marketplace. And we really had this realization that not a lot of people are talking about business-to-business packaging. Most of the focus today is on consumer plastic packaging, and that's, you know, being driven primarily by consumers, policymakers, corporations are really focused on it as well as part of like the consumer interest. And so we thought this would be a great opportunity to make visible the challenges around business-to-business plastic packaging. So for this project, we focus primarily on the linear plastic wrap. And for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the packaging space, linear palette wrap is like that clear, thin, white, clingy material that's used to wrap palettes. You've likely seen it. It's similar to saran wrap that you might use in your own kitchen as well. And it's used by nearly every industry that transports goods, including Microsoft using it within our data centers to transport IT assets. So this material is really interesting because it it can technically be recycled, but recycling rates are very low. We found some numbers. I think it was from Closed Loop Foundation and Plastic Recyclers Europe that only 21% is recycled in the US and 30% is recycled in Europe. So even though it can be recycled, very few people are taking the steps or maybe the recycling infrastructure isn't there for them to take that step to recycle. So we knew when we think about solutions for the space, it's not necessarily a solution to just like eliminate this type of material entirely because there's a really good reason why it's being used across industries. We want the stuff that we ship to show up without damage. And so there's a need to have something that holds that pallet more stable So we started looking at alternatives, like Anna was mentioning, we did a pilot on reusable pallet wrap, a recyclable pallet wrap, and a compostable pallet wrap. So that was the main target of the paper. And really, you know, I think one of the big benefits of going down this path is just bringing to light the fact that it's not only consumer packaging that we need to identify solutions for, but also business to business packaging. You are so right. I mean, we've done so many of these conversations with people and and in so many cases, we focus on the consumer facing element of the packaging because that's where the Blue Planet exposure kind of got the energy, I suppose, going around this topic. But there is so much of that sort of plastic wrap that you're describing in the business to business environment. And when you talk about those sorts of recycling rates, you see the huge potential opportunity that is being missed to turn that into some sort of circular system. And that sort of brings me back to Anna's comment about this is systemic change. This is about having to take all of the stakeholders at different parts of the value chain on that journey with you, because no one entity can do this on their own. And I was wondering if you were able to talk a little bit more to that about cross partnerships or cross supply chain partnerships and the stakeholders that are necessary to take this project forward. 
Yeah. And I would say I can't stress enough how important this piece is. And I remember when Anna and I first started this project, we had a lot of conversations about this in the beginning. And from the start of the project, we knew we wanted to bring together organizations from across the value chain, from packaging designers and manufacturers, businesses, and end-of-life facilities. There's huge value in having diverse perspectives and voices at the table so that we can understand needs and challenges of each of the key stakeholders. So that was really critical to us. And we focused on that throughout the project, made sure that we had those voices in the room. And when we were going through the pilots, we also made sure to get feedback throughout the process from each of those different entities so that we could find solutions that were able to be successfully implemented and scalable and also benefit the environment. So one of the takeaways for Microsoft on this journey was that while there are a broad range of solutions that could be utilized by any different organization, depending on what region they're in and what the infrastructure available is, one thing that should be consistent um, throughout this process is engaging with your stakeholders. So engaging with your packaging designers and manufacturers and your end-of-life facilities so you can implement something across a system and not just for the benefit of your own company. I think that also emphasizes the importance of data if you do circular supply chain and getting a, a joint understanding um, really to be able to talk to each other and then to discuss and find some different areas of collaboration and also have this kind of like, where can you collaborate? Where is it more competition and really move that forward? And I know, Anna, in a lot of areas we work in, data is king and data is super, super important. And in particular, also the sharing and visualization of data, because I think it's one thing to have data and have this really complex Excel spreadsheets you scare me with, or have something that I can understand, I can analyze, somebody else outside can share and understand. Was that a big part of the project? Was it part that you found as well? Or was it something that just came naturally by working through the different issues and working with your stakeholders? Well, we were trying to do quite a lot of data gathering at the beginning where we realized that there was a massive lack of actually available data and especially it was very regional available. So for Europe and the US, we could find some data, but all the other regions of the world was basically impossible to find any good data, especially because it is not the focus area of B2C packaging. And then we also conducted some LCA studies. So yes, we did have the data part in that area. But this project was luckily not one of the very data Excel heavy projects that was more kind of focusing on the qualitative aspects of it. But yes, I completely agree. The data and especially I think also the visualization of how things are represented ties in quite nicely also with the need of just having to have visually pleasing reports that people actually want to look at, want to get the key takeaways out from. So yeah, I definitely see that in that project as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I mean, regarding data and circularity, is that something that encourages people to be more circular? Or is that kind of like one of the stoppers as well, or one of the barriers, that lack of data, lack of knowing what's happening in different parts of the supply chains is a key part in enabling circular supply chains? 
I think yes, because I guess quite often people are quite shocked once they see the numbers black and white and actually see what are we doing currently. And especially if you present it in a way that people understand it quite quickly, people are like, oh my God, I hadn't expected the problem to be as big as it actually is. So yeah, I definitely think that data is quite crucial. And especially also a lot of the projects that we work on in general, I guess the lack of data is always kind of the issue and the one determining factor of how successful will the project be? How good is the data quality? What can we kind of analyze and get out of it versus not having as much data and kind of having to work with quite a lot of assumptions to make the picture as full as it can be? So yeah, definitely. And Alessandra, do you have any views? I mean, working for a data company to a certain degree, is that something that you find as well, that scope and the importance of data and big data is becoming more and more to the forefront in all parts of businesses? Certainly. Yeah, we are definitely seeing this even just within our four walls. I mean, I think Anna made a great point that when part of waste and circularity is needing to understand the larger system, and we also experience the lack of data that is describing the larger system. But even within our own company, we've been on a journey to greatly mature and improve our own waste data. And that's from operational waste to packaging waste to product data as well. So there's a huge role for digital enablement of understanding what waste is being generated, what waste streams it's going to, so if it's being reused or recycled. And I think one of the more exciting case studies that we have from Microsoft is within our data centers, we have these new buildings that we build near some of our data centers called circular centers. And so Once a server is done being used or needing to be repaired, we bring it into our circular center, we parts harvest, and then we have a way of using a digital tool to tell us where the component should go next. So should this component be recycled? Should this component go into our spares inventory and then be reused to repair another server down the line? And I think that is also a key element of using digital technology within the circular economy space, not just to give us visibility, but to give us insight into what is the next step. And so that's really what Microsoft is looking to build going forward as well. I think that's so interesting. I mean, from our perspective, I'm always amazed at how little data there is in organizations. You can't change what you can't measure or you can't invest in something that you can't prove the business case for. And yet so often when we go into organizations, there's patchy data at best and it's not collated and it's not uh, used in a way in which you can make sustainability based decisions from it. So when we come across organizations where you've got this sort of advanced thinking and not only are you using the data to make good decisions, you're actually using it to make recycling and usable decisions, which is really good in terms of the waste hierarchy. But the challenge that I often have, and I think I've talked about this on other podcasts, is how if you aren't good with data, and I'm not good with Excel or good with uh, other systems, how do you make that accessible to the C-suite? How do you make that accessible to those people who need to understand the journey you're on, the level of investment you're asking for, the scale of the impact that you can have? And I guess, Anna, maybe if I start with you, you've done some quite interesting stuff around visualization of data sets to help with that, haven't you? And maybe it'd be useful for our listeners to hear a little bit about some of that work. Yes, definitely. So I guess the kind of general journey of data visualization is increasing massively only already 
throughout the last, say, two and a half years that I've been with Anthesis, I can definitely see a massive shift that most projects will now want to have some kind of dashboards or kind of interactive ways how people can play with the data and see the data in graphs rather than in Excel spreadsheets and not just the number, but actually visually see where is my gap, where's the improvement that I can make because the audience of the reports or the analysis is not only going through to the technical people anymore, but it's actually going high up into the C-suite and those people mostly don't have a lot of time and they might also not have all the background knowledge to understand every little detail. So it has to be easily accessible quickly and also just like quite easy to understand so the tricky part is basically taking out the complexity out of a very complex system but I can definitely see that the change and the development is going very very much towards more easily accessible dashboards and visualizations and projects. And what you're hinting at there actually is a, is a new career pathway. So within our sector, you're now sort of identifying that analysts and people who specialize in digital solutions or data visualization actually would be welcomed within this sector to help to build that sort of knowledge bank and also to provide that future really important resource that we're going to need to make decisions in the right way in the future. Alessandra, do you have examples of this sort of thing within your organization? Yeah, we do. And I love what Anna was saying that it's kind of like this need to visualize for the C-suite has accelerated in the past few years. And I think we can see that pattern just in the way that sustainability has become central to some companies. For example, with Microsoft, our team reports directly into the president of the company. So there's a lot of visibility that's happening today. And when we think about digital enablement and visualizations for sustainability, we do need it to aggregate and be high level enough for a C-suite individual to look at that information and understand it. But we also need the ability for managers to go into that data and be able to drill down into the answers so that they can effectively communicate with their executive leaders. So we see the need for tools to do both, right? You need a dashboard that kind of like gives you the high level picture and allows for an effective conversation and for that C-level person to prioritize and give funding to areas that need it but also for managers to just go deep into the data and understand where the biggest challenges are or what are the more micro trends that are happening within their space. And I think you can see how that might be achievable within one organization. So I've suggested that data can be difficult, but it becomes really difficult when you're trying to aggregate it on behalf of a sector or a country or a geography by region. And I'm just wondering, because Claudio and Anna, you've obviously had experience of this. How available is data on sort of waste infrastructure, waste recycling rates and so on? And what do you do in markets where there is limited information, perhaps because the waste management is managed? through informal infrastructure systems where nobody's actually reporting on what's being collected. Yeah, Anna, do you like to go first? Yeah, sure. First of all, data is definitely patchy around the world. And I guess there's some areas where data is like very easily available. And we also have quite a good overview of, say, the European countries, the different states within the US. But as soon as it does get a bit patchy, 
there goes a lot of research into finding the answers that we want to find or that we need to find. The informal sector, I'll hand over to Claudia for that because we're actually kind of working quite a lot on projects looking in the informal sector just because it is so difficult to have data or at the moment data is very not available, let's say that. Yeah, I think the other part is also when we look for data, we start with often data that collected as part of regulations, because firstly, that's publicly available. And secondly, that's normally collected with a certain methodology, with a certain framework, got historic references. So you have similar data over a number of time. But the other problem is it's often collected for a different purpose. So you need to understand and adapt the data to be able to interpret and use it for your own purpose. And then every regulatory change or any change in definitions then breaks that chain of historic comparison or different countries collect similar data very differently if that's household waste, how they apply recycling rates and everything. So I think it's not so much not the availability of data. I think it's a skill to fit it all together, to understand it and make it comparable and then interpret. I think that's a lot of the work we are doing. And I love that we are doing this now with a lot of visualization tools because they're not just there to present data. They're also really to help us analyze it. And I know when I work with the teams, they ask me all sorts of difficult questions. What does it actually mean? What does it do? Where does it fit? And it really makes me think about all the data we have and the data we collect in more general terms. And I think on the informal side, especially in the plastic space, or because we are talking about plastics today again, uh, and it's still a very, very important subject, is that a lot of these plastics and other material collections are also having a social aspect in the informal network, what's being collected, where is it going collected. There's often very little transparency in how much and what's being collected, what the prices are being paid for. So it's a slightly murky field where you then really have to combine this, what I call secondary data, secondary research with more primary research, where you have to go into the market and try to extrapolate to understand it. And I think sometimes you need to do something very similar in the B2B sector, because B2B is confidential, it's starting business transaction, it's bilateral transaction. So a lot of that is just not published and just not shared because it gives too much insight into the actual business, into the business dealings. And that always makes it really difficult. And I think that's also sometimes making it very difficult to build those circular supply chains, a bit like where my question for earlier was aiming at to say, the more data we have and understanding we have and share it, the more it actually enables us to work together. But sometimes if you're not just working within your own supply chain and you're getting other businesses in, it's really difficult to share data because you're giving a competitive advantage or some really valuable market knowledge away, which you don't really want to. And I think that makes it sometimes difficult to work to find the right spot between collaboration and, and competition. I think we always manage very easily to fill our time. So we are nearly at time. I would like to ask both of our guests to share if you could ask one thing of the industry or policymakers, what would it be in terms of maybe in the terms of the data and plastics, what we're talking about, or something completely different? Just take your pick. Alessandra, do you like to start maybe? Yeah, happy to. And I, Claudia, I'm going to break the rules a little bit and choose two things. So I hope you'll allow that. 
And this is coming off of the conversation that we just had about data, because I, I think it's a really important one. And what I see as one of the biggest challenges with getting that regional data or even global data around waste is that there still lacks common standards around definition and measurement for waste and circularity. So even if one company or one country is reporting on a specific metric using a very specific definition, it might not be able to compare to a different organization or country. So that's a huge problem. It's a big barrier when we try to look at the macro trends within this space. So one next step for my vision of where the waste and circularity industry goes is to, you know, define the definitions as well as the metrics to measure circularity across industries and products. And then the second one, when you were talking about the informal sector, this really reminded me about the next topic that I'm going to bring up, which is around equity. So oftentimes within the circular economy, I think many people in our industry get super focused on the economic aspect of that, which is definitely important, but there needs to be a focus on equity as well. There's a disproportionate effects of upstream resource extraction and downstream waste management and pollution. And it's critical to develop a strategy that ensures underrepresented and under-resourced communities are not left behind as we transition into the circular economy. No, that's a really, really important, important aspect. And I think often when we track those informal chains, the difference becomes very apparent in pricing and pay. And that's basically then expressed in economics, but also in terms of general standards and how ethical, sustainable all of those businesses that are in the supply chain are. So, uh, yeah, these are two lovely, really points. So I give you two points for this one. <laughs> Anna, would you like one or two? I'll take one, although if I should have probably gone first because I was also thinking about, for me, looking at the work that we do, data is really the crucial point in all the projects that we're doing across all different types of projects, different types of companies. It always comes down to the quality of the data, the standard, and just some companies just don't have any data that you can really work with. So I think that is having that also industry-wide more standards, more kind of streamlined processes, even sort the data within their own organizations and to gather their data to also make it slightly easier for companies because it's also quite often such a work-heavy and work-intensive process to actually get data. I think that would definitely be one of the points that has to be improved if we want to see the whole system improving. Then, yeah, we basically have to start at the beginning and that is always coming down to the data point. Claudia, I know we're at time, but I'd like to chuck in something because I'd like to bring us back to the report that we were talking about at the beginning of this session and just say I think it would be great to see more collaboration around the B2B space in the way that we were talking about. And I really commend the partnership between Microsoft and Anthesis on this report because I think it's been really well received. We've seen it uh, go through the social media channels and the number of comments and positive pieces of feedback that we're receiving about how inspiring it is for other people who are looking to address this challenge and other business to business waste challenges. So uh, we know that there's collaboration across the supply chain. We know often that it is happening between unusual suspects, but I think this is a lovely illustration of some 
something that's been put out into the public domain and is actually really benefiting a much wider range of stakeholders. So thank you both for that work and thank you for joining us on the podcast. So I think we have reached the end of our discussion today. I hope you found it interesting. Just a big thank you from all of us to Alessandra and Anna for joining us and sharing your insights, brilliant ideas, points and upcoming plans. I think if you've got any comments or questions as a listener about anything you heard in this session or anything you would like to cover in the future, please get in touch via the Ancesis Group website or email us or reach out on LinkedIn, as many do. We always look forward to feedback. And until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.